That's not, that's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Don't use those kinds of slurs. On what, are there are no slurs here. Our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That, that's, what they, that's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. I mean, is there any argument you can use to wake them up? Yeah, I think uh, God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yes. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Well, good evening. Good evening, Dr. E. Michael Jones. How are you? Good evening, Gemma. Good to hear from you. I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. Fine. Great. All of your Irish fans were in a little bit of a panic there. <laughs> there was a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding. I apologize. I apologize. It was my fault. It's my own damn fault. Jimmy the, Buffett well, did. there's a search party out. The diaspora in um, South Bend are on. They're hunting for you as we speak. So no, nothing yeah. I can do about that. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Good to be here. Great to have you back. Great to have you back. Just before we get into a few matters, and I know we have some questions as well from our audience um, on Getter, actually. Um, we were just talking there before we went live about this. It actually is a conspiracy theory about the Vatican controlling the world's money. And somebody sent me something the other day that the term VAT, value-added tax, comes from the word Vatican and it's like to myself I didn't respond but I knew I knew she, I, this person hadn't said this herself she hadn't thought it that somebody had told her this 
Can you tackle this subject for once and for all? I grew up in a Catholic country, as I always say. We didn't have to pay for anything in terms of healthcare, schooling. Everything was free because it was run by the church. And just to all of our Protestant friends, nobody has to pay a penny to be a Catholic. There is a, a broken up old basket that goes around at mass and you can throw in nothing, two cents. You can throw in 50 euros. Nobody cares. Nobody takes your name and asks how much have you given to your church. That's a very Protestant thing. So I want to set that straight. Mike, would you deal with this, please? Yeah, you said it, uh, Gemma. Vatic, va value added tax. Where, that's where the term VAT comes from. It's obvious. Uh, but you're touching it's in on English. It's an English thing. It's right. Right. came from the crown, not the Vatican. What about Germany? What about Germany? It's called Mehrwertsteuer in Germany. What's that got to do with the Vatican? Obviously, the Germans are, they have a long history of dealing with the Vatican. No, it's preposterous. It's one of these preposterous claims. Okay, we laid it to rest. Now we got to deal with something serious, which is basically uh, this. Oh, where does this come from? It's called the Black Legend. Or it's called Whig history. And what we're talking about is ever since the Reformation, England has been at war with one Catholic power or another. And they have paid people to write propaganda for them. And some of these people are, are very famous. If you want to talk about the Whig oligarchs, you have uh, Henry Fielding, who was famous because he wrote Tom Jones. He was a Whig uh, placement. We can get even more uh uh, illustrious if we go to France. Uh, one of the major propagandists for England in France during the middle of the 18th century was a man by the name of Voltaire. We all know who Voltaire was. Uh, it was This was a moment where England was using the Masonic Lodge to overthrow the Bourbon monarchy in France. This is what they were doing. Uh, France, the, the England had been at war with Spain before that. That's a Catholic power. Now they're at war with France, and they want to get agents over there to work for them. And so Voltaire comes over to England, and he starts uh, meeting people, meeting famous people. He met Alexander Pope, and Pope wrote in a memoir after the fact, or a diary entry, he said, I had the feeling that Voltaire was pumping me for information on Catholics. Well, he probably was because he was an agent of the British, went back to France and started writing propaganda for uh, uh, Britain, uh, Philo-British propaganda there, which was contributing to the eventual overthrow of the Bourbon monarchy, which took place during the French Revolution. One of the books he wrote was called Candide, and it's supposedly about this earthquake in Lisbon and uh, this Dr. Pangloss who tells us that it's the best of all possible worlds, as if the church never had to deal, explain the reality of human suffering and the purpose of human suffering, uh, a completely preposterous premise for the book. But anyway, the main target of Candide was the Jesuits. And I'm talking about a time when the Jesuits were the cutting edge, the most daring group of Catholics in the world who did enormous, the achievements of the Jesuits at this time are simply astounding. Because what you have is a corresponding uh, Ignatius of Loyola founds this order at the very moment 
that the whole new world is opening up. This is the age of explorations following the Columbus's discovery of America. The Portuguese are sailing to China. They're sailing. It's, it's an incredible moment in human history. And what you have is people walking into two high civilizations that had never met, coming in confrontation with each other. Think of the story of Cortez coming to Mexico, <coughs> which led to, by necessity, led to a war because the Aztecs were not going to go without a fight. They were a brutal group of people that had enslaved every ethnic group around them, and they marched their enemies up a pyramid, and they cut out their hearts. Thousands of people died with their hearts cut out to sacrifice to the wicked god of Huitzilopochtli. That's the reality of the situation. The Jesuits went to Quebec, where they sat down with the people, the natives. They had to learn the language. These Jesuits walk into the, a place where no one has ever had an exposure to these languages. It's not as if you can go on the computer and type in Yabla or something like that. you got to lie down with the, the Indians. you got to take go on the moose hunt where the snow is waist deep so you can learn the language, incredible suffering. That's what they did in Quebec, and they did the same thing in Paraguay. Now, this is where the, the story comes, where Voltaire comes into the story. He, in Candide, he talked about all, he retailed all the slanders against the Jesuits that the Freemasons were floating at that point because they wanted to suppress the Jesuits because they knew that they were the main barrier to the total takeover of the monarchy in France and other Catholic countries. They were a subversive fifth column. I've often criticized people now for using the word Freemason, and uh, rightly so, because Freemason now is basically a euphemism for people who don't have the courage to say Jew. But in the 18th century, that was not the case. There was a Freemasonic conspiracy against the Catholic Church, and the focus of it was the Jesuits. And they had gone to Paraguay and basically created an economy out of nothing that was an alternative to the encomienda system of the Spanish, which is a slavery system, and free market capitalism of the sort that the English were promoting. Okay, it was an alternative to both of them. It could have provided a whole different history, certainly of South America, than what we have today. But it was strangled in its cradle by thanks to Voltaire and the Freemasons. A weak pope was got on the throne. It was basically, before this, we had Benedict XIV, who was a very strong pope. When the Duc de Choiseul showed up, there was a little bit of confusion because France is the eldest daughter of the church. Here is a French foreign minister showing up, and he's a Freemason, but he doesn't say that. And he ha he's hectoring the pope to suppress the Jesuits. And the Pope basically turns on and said, you want to be Pope? There's the chair. You sit in the chair. Rebuked the Duke de Choiseul, but he and the Marquis de Pombal in Portuguese conspired, and they got this weak successor, whose name I don't remember, who did suppress the Jesuits. And at that point, the road was clear to the French Revolution, and that's what happened. That's the story of what happened. Then all of this black legend stuff all comes out of that matrix. It was Englishmen basically paying for propaganda to attack the Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 
it's an abomination. It really, really is. Every single Catholic knows that there is no pull on your financial um, well-being or otherwise as a Catholic. And I like I really resent it's mostly Protestants who are pushing this idea that, you know, the Vatican is controlling the world's wealth. I mean, yes, the Vatican, the Catholic monarchies are responsible for the most beautiful buildings in Europe and responsible for the most beautiful art. That art was the means, the vehicle through which the people could understand the gospel. But yet Protestants who attack you night and day and attack me night and day are saying that all of that art, all of that culture should be thrown in the bin. Without that culture, we would not be Catholic today. We wouldn't, you, none of you Protestants out there would have the faith. People didn't know how to read and they were able to see through the art, through the, the, the various, all through the, the last 2000 years, right from the beginning after the, the resurrection, they were able to discover what had happened in, in um, Jerusalem and in Nazareth and in Bethlehem due to art, you know, and, and like I, I listen to these people who are attacking Catholicism and they forget that, you know, we had Catholicism only for 1500 years and it was the vehicle through which we discovered the story of Christ. So. Yeah, look, uh, first of all, beauty is a transcendental. Now, what does that mean? There, the good, the true, and the beautiful are transcendentals. When you are in the presence of the good, the true, or the beautiful, you are in the presence of God. And that is the fundamental issue with liturgical art in uh, the Catholic Church. We had a situation where you simply walk into a, a building like St. Peter's, and you're overwhelmed by the beauty of the place, and that immediately disposes your mind to be open to God. Now, it was the Protestants who destroyed that. It was the iconoclast who basically destroyed the cathedral in Antwerp, which unleashed this huge wave of iconoclasm that swept northward uh, and uh, eastward throughout the Spanish Netherlands. That was the outbreak of the revolution there. This was the incredibly violent revolution. And we're getting to the heart of the matter here when we get to iconoclasm. This is an attack on beauty. If you're attacking beauty, you're attacking God because a God is a transcendental. And so what it is, is an anti-God revolution. Now, th it's important to know this because we have been raised in an era of irenic irenicism with Jews and Protestants that sends a lot of material down the memory hole. It was, there was a lot of make-believe involved in this dialogue, both with the Jews and the Protestants. What happened over this period of time is that Protestantism evaporated. Now, I've, been, I've said that on your program a number of times. I mentioned England. I mentioned Scandinavia. Now there's a book that's come out. A Frenchman by the name of Emmanuel Tote wrote a book called La Défaite de l'Occident, The Defeat of the West. And that is precisely the premise of this book. He said the, that Protestantism was the hidden grammar of the American empire. 
And now the American empire is collapsing because Protestantism evaporated over this period of time. That's the premise of the book. It substantiates what I've been saying. But what it adds to this is a lot of, well, what happens when the empire collapses? And what happens is violence. Because whether you like it or not, the Pro Protestantism was the form of the American empire. It told you how to act. It told you what to wear. It told you, in a sense, how to think. And when you break that form, it's like splitting the atom. What happens? That's a form. The atom is a form. It holds things together. What happens when you split the atom? You get an explosion. You get a nuclear explosion. Watch Oppenheimer for, for a graphic description of the power that gets released when you split the atom. And you will have some sense of the destructive power that has been unleashed because of the evaporation of Protestantism and the decline of the American empire as a result. The net result is violence, violence across the board. And he lists lots of stuff. Uh, Scandinavia, that was the Lutheranism was the uh, official religion of Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, all these places. What happened? The religion evaporates, and what do they do? They abandon neutrality immediately, and they join NATO. Yep. And as soon as they join NATO, they're involved in violence fighting fighting the U Ukraine. This is stunning, but this is an example. What about mass shootings in the United States of America? Another example of what happens when the form collapses. So, wait, you, I don't know how to act anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, look, we 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 are a neutral country. Why? Why have we never got involved in, in wars? Because of our Catholic legacy. You go to Sweden now and you go to certain cities like Malmo and you will see burqas everywhere. You will see mosques everywhere. If it hadn't been, well, look, I mean, we because of the rejection of Catholicism, Europe is turning Islamic now. We, you know, again, this Protestant narrative forgets completely of the valiant wars fought by the Catholic monarchs to keep Islam out. It was encroaching more and more north into France. And we would all have been living under Sharia law for the last couple of hundred years if it hadn't been for the Catholic monarchies who kept Islam out of Europe, the brave Spanish Catholics who were martyred to keep Islam out of Europe. But that we, we have to forget all, forget that history. That's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant, according to the solo scripturas of this world. And now Scandinavia, because it went Protestant, is now Islamic. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, one of the great moments of European history was the story of the siege of Vienna by the Turks, 1685, there were a number of sieges. Every time, every time the, cat, the Christians in Europe would fight with each other, the Turks would arrive. This is why Luther called them the scourge of God, the Peitsche Gottes. They would start marching up the Danube and then the, cat, the Christians would say, okay, stop, stop fighting. We have to deal with the Turks. Well, this time, they, 1685, they got all the way to the gates of Vienna. 
and this Vienna is under siege. This is the the end. I mean, if they get there, there's nothing to stop them. You know, they just keep going, going, going. They take all back all of Europe. And the the great heroic moment, which has been immortalized in uh, Lord of the Rings, he talked about it. He called it Minas Tirith, but it's really Vienna. And it was the Polish cavalry. It was the Catholic Poles who basically saved Europe at that moment in history, the turning point in that moment in history. So, the, the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. Belloc says, at this point, the Turks had superior weaponry. <laughs> Their cannons were better than anything that the Christians had. They had dynamite, or not dynamite, but gunpowder, much much more gunpowder than the Christians had. They blew up the wall. And at that point, there's a big gap in the wall, and there's one guy with a halberd that's got to stand in the breach and basically fight to the end. He doesn't know at the end. He's hoping that the Poles will arrive. He doesn't know where they're going to arrive. This is the type of heroic history that... Uh, we don't know about it anymore. Thank no. God. Thank God for uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who kind of brought it back in a cryptic way. But this is the type of battle that was going on in Europe at that time because of the Reformation. It was because of the Reformation, because Catholic princes were fighting each other, that they they couldn't resist the Turks. And now look at what is the most common name in London now, Mike? Do you know? Mahmoud. Now you said it, Muhammad, because they abandoned Catholicism 500 years ago, and this is is the result. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We've said it many times. Basically, nature abhors a vacuum. You cannot have an emptiness there, a void. It has to be filled by something. And so when Protestantism evaporated in England, you become either a white boy or a Muslim because they have been so conditioned by centuries of anti-Catholic propaganda that they're not even considering the fact of where their Protestantism came from. The man, the man who understood that was William Cobbett, who wrote brilliantly about the, the, the so-called uh, Reformation. For 900 years, he said, the Catholic Church ruled England, and it reached a point where you couldn't go, you could go six miles in any direction, and you would find a a Catholic institution that would take you in for the night. And if you were sick, if you were sick, they would nurse you back to health. Yeah. All of that disappeared with the Reformation, which was basically one large looting operation. I've said this many times, yeah. one large looting operation. The great uh, guy who put that into words was uh, R.H. Tawney, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. He said that the uh, the upstart aristocracy uh, tasted blood, and they weren't going to. Uh, they were. They they had their teeth in the carcass, and they weren't going to be whipped off by a sermon. That carcass is the monastery, the lands, and the institutions of the Catholic Church that they stole from the people of England, because the people of England were the main beneficiaries of that Catholic culture as it existed then, and was all stolen. And after that, you have incredible poverty. You have a rootless uh, agricultural proletariat who were thrown off their lands so that the, 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 the aristocrats should, could graze sheep. And you have Ireland. 
the entire island of Ireland was subjected to that type of tyranny by Cromwell and other people. The persecution of Catholics is the only Holocaust that we should be talking about. And when people deny Catholic persecution, then they deny the existence of Ireland because that is our history. That is our history being persecuted right up to the present day for being Catholic. That's right. Nothing um, has changed. Just the method has changed, but the, the principle has not changed. And what you're saying of Ireland is also true of Germany. Exactly of true of Germany, which is in many ways in a much worse situation than Ireland because the Germans have internalized the commands of their oppressors much more than the Irish have. Well, it's been Protestant for so much longer. You know, I mean, Ireland will never be Protestant. It's under Jewish control, but it will never be Protestant because we know what that means. But it's it's one and the same thing. But we'll it never. Is, it is the same thing. And so, it, it, I just mentioned this brilliant kind of a brilliant book by this Frenchman. Guess guess what? Guess which word he cannot say? Jew. Juif. He cannot say the word juif. And so he, he has this long sentence. I, I'm going to read it. I should read it, but I'm going to read it uh, on Friday. But anyway, long sentence in French and going on and on, precise, elegant French. And then he comes to the punchline and he says, les neoconservatives. Oh. <laughs> he took the word right out. He's like everybody over here, every mainstream outlet over here, Tucker Carlson, Colonel McGregor. They have to use the word neoconservative because they can't really uh, uh, bring themselves to, to, to name the uh, the perpetrator. Cherchez le juif. You've heard of Cherchez la femme. Well, now it's Cherchez la juif. Cherchez la juif. And that's the price, precisely the shortcoming of this book. So it's just as if, okay, Protestantism evaporated. Well, I did sort of, but there were people who were kind of helping the evaporation going along. And that's precisely what he can't talk about. So, yeah, the WASP ruling class sort of passed away. Now, I said it's 1978. 1978 is the year in which uh, John D. Rockefeller III and Nelson Rockefeller died. And that was the beginning of the Jewish hegemony over American culture, which has reached total control of our political process. Total control. That's not an exaggeration. Okay, 457 Jews are running the Biden administration. They're called Biden's minion. We're, we are in serious trouble. We are in deep doo-doo, in case you haven't noticed. We've got Houthis. Nobody even knows what a Houthi is. that have basically stopped shipping in the Red Sea. The main task of the United States Navy and therefore the United States government is to keep the sea lanes open. We are the heirs of the British Empire, which Britannia ruled the waves. That was the whole point of the British Navy. Keep the sea lanes open. Now they're blocked in the Red Sea. Now there's been an attack in uh, either Jordan or Syria, depending on who you listen to. Okay, and the warmongers, Lindsey Graham, John Bolton, the psychopath John Bolton, who used to be Trump's uh, national security advisor, is now on CNN, which is supposed to be the liberal station, liberal network, that hates Trump, and he's thumping his chest calling for war. That's what these people do. 
I'm saying this is an example of what this Frenchman is talking about. The collapsing empire is creating violence all over the world. And the violence is spiraling out of control. I saw you talking on Stu Peters about that. And I think Tucker must be really starting to get a bit embarrassed about the fact that he hasn't had you on yet. Because I know a lot of people will be saying there's only one person who makes any sense, who makes the most sense in all of this. And that's you, Mike. And, you know, the fact that the likes of Tucker ignore you, but I suspect it's only a matter of time. It is. I think it is. I think you're right. I, I had, I don't know whether I, you heard me say this, but my paradigm when I was talking to uh, Richard Spencer was, you know, yes. here you handed out spears and you said, charge the machine gun deaths and everybody got mowed down. The back of my mind was a movie I watched called Zulu with Michael Caine about the Zulu war in South Africa. And it, it was, there was a, a scene in it where the British have the, the rifles, they didn't have a machine gun, but they had rifles. And the Zulus are waving their spears called Asagai, and they charge them and they get shot. Well, it turns out that's not what happened. It turns out that the at the Battle of Rourke's Griff, the Zulus broke through the line and they killed every single British uh, soldier. Now, this is a new paradigm. Because, in effect, what we have, we, we are the Zulus now. Okay? They've got the guns. Uh, we've got the numbers, okay? If we can come together and have a shared consciousness, we certainly have the numbers. And when you have the numbers, maybe a lot of people are going to die. But one Zulu is going to get through the line. And so the question is, who's the first Zulu to get through the line? Is it you, Tucker? Tucker, here's your moment in history. You, you can walk on the stage of history right now and you could, because of your big, you got big numbers, you could be the first, first Zulu to cross the line. I guarantee you, you could do it. You, you would think at this stage, financially, he doesn't need the money. He, he's in his, what is he, an evangelical Episcopalian? Episcopalian. I mean- don't, don't get, my first wife was an Episcopalian. She would be upset if you convinced, confused her with a, uh, an evangelical. And you're still uh, married to her. I'm still married. I just, I just want to say, and she's a hardcore cat, devout cat. Right. So we've been married. She's my first wife, but we've been married for 54 years. So, but uh, she was an Episcopalian. She's now a Catholic, but she was an Episcopalian. And I remember a time when there was a WASP ruling class. I'm old enough to remember that, you know, and it's gone now. It's a brilliant book in many ways. But you have to carry this to its logical conclusion. You can't pull your punches. So, yeah, it's the, who succeeded the WASP ruling class? Who succeeded? Who's, who's, who's the main source of violence in this world right now? It's the people, the Biden's minion, the Jews who took over our government and are leading us into wars, supporting the genocide in Gaza, opening up, failing with their war in the Ukraine, now threatening to expand this war to include Iran, which will be a total disaster. And we are helpless human shields, innocent bystanders. I'm talking about the American people now. We stand by helplessly as these lunatics drive the car off the cliff. Well, 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, if the American, I mean, people who are joining, signing up for the American military at this stage, it's like signing up for the vaccine. I mean, why would they want to have anything to do with that tranny ridden? Well, no, they have problems. They're having problems recruiting people. Even yeah, with which the, is great. The, even with student debt as the incentive and a bad economy, they're still having trouble uh, signing up people. So it's it and and on top of that, the uh, the big story on the other mainstream news outlet is basically uh, we need to send more uh, military aid to the Ukraine. Well, as if, as if you could just press a button. These people in Washington think, oh, I'll just press the military button and it'll magically appear over there. We can't produce this. We can't produce artillery shells. We are in big trouble because the military industrial complex likes to make big, expensive weapons like the Tomahawk missile or like the Patriot system. Is it not better just to, I mean, Israel must be seen as the ultimate psychopath. They're just throwing their toys out of the pram. They want, they're screaming for attention. And I think the best thing is just to ignore them, just to ignore them because we we have war, we have enough war going on in our, in Europe and in America as it is. We have, you know, we're living under totalitarian governments. We're losing our right to free speech. We shouldn't be giving one grain of energy to, to Israel. Let it just be ignored. You know, I, that's my feeling. I mean, if people want to go off and die for Israel, let them. There's people being killed every single day in all of our countries. This slow kill through vaccines, through the other forms of poisoning that, that are happening. Um, it's still, it's still a form of war. No, I agree with you. But is anyone asking me for my opinion on Fox News or CNN or no. on the cap? Are, we are completely excluded. The American people have been have been completely excluded from this discussion, which is being conducted by people who are all on the take with big money and, and the Jew, IPAC and the whole control of our political process. That's that's the frustration. The frustration, though, is is catching on. There are more and more people now who are starting to get on the same wavelength. I, I, I could just sense, I could give you examples, but I don't think I should on this yeah. Uh, no, no. Well, no, I want to get to these questions. Sorry now, because we're going right back to where we began. Somebody did ask who instigated the looting operation of the Protestant Reformation. They've given three names, obviously Martin Luther, John Wycliffe, or John Hus. Okay, if you're talking about Jan Hus, this was a prelude. It, it happened in Bohemia uh, about 100 years before the the Reformation. Uh, the Bohemia, uh, Pius the uh, Silvio, Aeneas Silvio Piccolomini, who became Pius the mm-hmm. Second, I believe, uh, wrote a book, uh, Historia Bohemiae, in which he said 80% of the property in Bohemia was owned by the church. Now, the aristocrats could not resist this, and so they created a rebellion. It had a lot to do with lots of complicated theological issues, but it was basically a rebellion to steal that property. The man who went to Prague to learn this lesson was Thomas Munzer. And Thomas Munzer took that along with the military tactics 
of Jan Zizka, the great one of the greatest generals in the history of Europe, took them back and used them deliberately in the uh, the Reformation in Germany. So that was the connection bet between Jan Hus and and uh, it's in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Buy a copy, you'll learn all of the stuff in detail with footnotes and everything else. Okay, who is the, who are the other people now? Yeah, uh, well, John Wycliffe. I don't know. Wycliffe create translate the first man to tra translate the Bible into English. Uh, there are people who, this is kind of the Weber thesis where Protestantism brought about literacy. Uh, literacy had to be in the vernacular. And this is what created this uh, intellectual, the intellectual powerhouse known as Protestantism. Uh, there's the lady who wrote the uh, story about the guns of August. She did a lot in her book called the, the Bible and the Sword about the English, English philo-Semitism traced it back to Wycliffe. Okay, the other guy is Luther. Okay, we all know who Luther was. Well, it's, well, we you see, we don't necessarily explain to exactly what Luther's problems were with the Catholic Church. Okay, so let's go back again. This is in a book I've written. It's called Barren Metal. It's a history of capitalism as the conflict between labor and usury. And so at this point, uh, you have the medieval papacy, uh, Leo X is a Medici. He is now Pope. He's determined to enjoy his uh, stay on the throne of Peter. Uh, it was a decadent era, and the cardinals uh, were uh, basically very wealthy people who were lending money out at usury, okay? And they were making money off of this, and they were thwarting the attempts of the Franciscans and the Dominicans to basically deal with the problem of usury and the fact that it was impoverishing people, they created pawn shops uh, called uh, the Monte di Pietà, and uh, this was supposed to help uh, those people. The Vatican was in need of money. They wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica, and so they got the idea of we'll sell indulgences, okay? An indulgence is not buying your way into heaven, okay? Indulgences do not forgive sin. Only confession forgives sin, and you don't have to pay a nickel to go to confession. No one would ever do that. The church has never done that. If you want the remission of temporal punishment due to sin, in other words, the fact that you have to pay something back here. You did something wrong. We have to even up the books. Uh, so you can either do it when you're going to, you can go to purgatory, and you can burn in purgatory or you can buy an indulgence. I don't want to get into the theology of this, but basically it was enormously resented by the certain people in Germany because Luther among them felt that the gold was draining from Germany to, to Rome. Okay. And that was causing problems. If you want to know the real source of the Reformation, you have to combine Luther's personal problems with the fact that the aristocracy were resentful of Rome and also they had the same greed, the same avarice that they I talked about in Bohemia. There, these people lusted after church property. It was easy to steal. They could steal it. They thought they could do wealthy simply by stealing what the church owned. And the man who enabled that in Germany was Luther. Luther could have done nothing without the support of the princes who wanted the church property. He did the deal. 
basically, uh, same thing as the Anglicans did in England, same things that the Presbyterians did in Scotland. Basically, you make me the head of the new German church, and I will let you loot uh, church property. It's that simple. It's that simple. Thomas Munzer said this about Luther. He said, you just want a comfortable life. And of course, Luther didn't like that. Luther was a weak man. He had could not control his own passions. And so he, when, when this started to break down, he, would, he and his boys would go to convents and they'd actually break in and practice uh, women's liberation, 16th century style, which is basically dragging the nuns out. And a lot of, I have to admit, a lot of them were happy to be dragged out. Uh, and then he would offer them to other priests and even the Bishop of Mainz. He offered the prettiest one in the latest raid to the Bishop of Mainz. So this is what's going on at the time. It came together, and basically it broke the unity of Christendom, and it's never been repaired. It's never been repaired. Germany has been a divided country ever since. Ireland has been divided, conquered by that group of looters who basically now were using Jewish models instead of Christian models, and the Irish are now the goyim and the goyim are subhuman. This is exactly the, the basically the, the lesson of Calvinism. There are some people who are predestined to be damned, and they are subhuman, and you can kind of treat them uh, as you will. This is where the whole thing started. Fantastic, fantastic. Yes, that's exactly where it started. Um, okay, I know there's a couple of questions about the Holocaust. One, somebody was asking if the Holocaust was fake, why didn't the German people proclaim it so stridently and uh, expose it? But uh, I know that you have a very good explanation for that. It's called social engineering. The German people were subjected to the most ruthless form of social engineering in human history. Because it, the technology of this simply hadn't been developed up until this point. And so uh, I've talked about this before. It, it wasn't, what do you mean, was it fake? What does that mean? When Eisenhower's troops showed up at Ordruf, it was a real concentration camp and there were real dead bodies on the ground. When the British showed up at Bergen-Belsen, it was a real concentration camp and there were lots of dead bodies all over the place and they had dug trenches to throw them in because they simply couldn't bury this many people. Why was that the case? Was there a gas chamber in Ordruf? No, absolutely not. No one ever says that. Well, how did they die? Well, they died from disease. They died from typhus. Because you can't put people in a, in a situation like this with poor sanitation, bad water, and basically no food because the Allies have bombed all the rail lines and not expect them to get sick and die. No medical care. That was more, even more so the case of in uh, Bergen-Belsen. The people, the, the, the inmates at Auschwitz, the, when the Soviet army is approaching from the east, the inmates at Auschwitz were given the option to either surrender to the Soviets or to retreat back west to another concentration camp, namely Bergen-Belsen. Most of them, including Ailey Wiesel, took the option of staying with the Nazis and going to Bergen-Belsen. 
The problem is it was already overcrowded, and then you got all these people coming in who are already sick uh, with typhus, basically, and typhoid. And it was a, a, a medical catastrophe. That's real. But now you're going to call in Alfred Hitchcock, and he's going to make a propaganda film about how they died that is not telling the truth. So what you have is a category of reality. Yes, there were dead bodies there with a super big superimposed on that a category of the mind saying they died because the Nazis uh, murdered them. It's not true. I'm not saying Nazis didn't murder people, but I'm saying the mass graves that you're seeing there were not the result of gas chambers. They did not ha it did not happen. Did not happen there. So what happened is next camp is uh, Buchenwald. After Eisenhower, Eisenhower now calls in the head of propaganda, General McClure, says, we need to uh, bring in all the congressmen, all the journalists, New York Times, and we're going to show them what the American troops are, or what we're fighting about. So they or orchestrate a propaganda show uh, at uh, Buchenwald, which is outside of Weimar. They get ordered 2,000 people to walk from Weimar to Buchenwald. It's about six miles. And when they get there, C.D. Jackson, who was an important figure in American propaganda, uh, who ended up working for Time Life and the CIA at the same time, holds up a, a lampshade made out of human skin, supposedly Jewish skin, two shrunken heads, and an ashtray. That's a category of the mind. Nobody in his right mind ever said that Germans shrunk heads. They got it out of a museum where it was about Amazonian tribes. They're the one that shrink heads. That's what I'm saying here. So when you say, is it real, you have to make this type of qualification. Well, I, I think but the, uh, um, that's all hugely relevant. But his question was, why did the, why did the German people go along with it? And you're, they had no choice. I mean, the treatment of the German people post-World War II was just horrific. It and, was. And, and I have... I've dealt with that. That's I've written another chapter. Uh, it will be published in uh, the next issue of Culture Wars, uh, and it's about the expulsion of the ethnic Germans from the eastern provinces and the horrendous suffering that was inflicted on the German people that no one talks about. And I'm talking about innocent German people. All this is we have been so corrupted by Jewish propaganda and people telling us there are no innocent civilians in Gaza because they voted for Hamas or something like that. This is Jewish. It's not Catholic. Catholics have always said that there are non-combatants that you cannot mistreat, and that's who these people were. The, the German men were all in the army. And so now you've got old men, you've got women, and you've got children being forced out of their homes to walk through the snow hundreds of miles to get to Germany, and they died like flies along the way, and no one is talking about this. We and the Rhein-Wiesenlag and the Rhine Meadows, where the soldiers, German soldiers, were just basically left out in the open air, left to die, left to right. starve in the that freezing was, that, was, that was a war crime committed by General Eisenhower, and so you now understand why General Eisenhower was so avid to create the Holocaust narrative because it got him off the hook for the war crimes he had committed. It got the Air Force off the hook 
for the war crimes against the innocent civilians in Dresden, the firebombing of Dresden, which is the real Holocaust. That's why it happened. But yeah. the, the story of the German people, that has to be hold, told too. So the first plan, so what happens? When the Hitler comes to power, the Jews run away, and now they come back looking for vengeance. Now they don't have to fight the German army. Now it's just innocent women and children, civilians who are down and out. And they come back. 70% of the lawyers at the Nuremberg trial were Jews. And they came back lusting for vengeance. Okay? That's what happened. That's the story that, that also needs to be told. The first plan was called the Morgenthau plan, and that was to starve the Germans to death. At this point, the residual Christianity of the WASP ruling class kicked in through people like Herbert Hoover. George Patton felt this way and said, this is not Christian. This is Semitic vengeance, and we're not going to tolerate it. And so they kicked them out. Morgenthau got kicked out, and they brought in the Marshall Plan which came with money. The Währungsreform, the currency reform took place in 1948. And now the Germans have money and that's great, but there's a problem here because now we're not dealing with this brutal form of Jewish vengeance to starve the people to death, to flood the coal mines and the Ruhr. Now we're talking about social engineering and we're talking about sexual liberation as a form of political control. First time it's really used uh, certainly by the Americans. The very, the same year as the Verongs reform, the currency reform, 50 tons of pornography come over the border from Austria. And now you have this huge battle. Everybody, 1949, 1950, the big battle is the obscenity battle. And the Frings, Cardinal Frings, who stood up who defended the people, stood there in, German, in Cologne as it was being bombed by the Allies, then told them uh, during Das Hungerjahr 46-47 that they could take food out of the warehouses and it wasn't theft, and they could take coal from the trains if they had to heat their houses. Now he's saying obscenity cannot be tolerated in Germany. Well, this is a much more difficult battle, and Frings is an old man now, and basically what you saw over the 50s was the slow erosion of sexual morality among the German people. That leads to guilt. When the Jew comes around, he says, look, I know why you feel guilty. It's because your grandfather drove a train in Poland. That doesn't make you feel guilty. What they did was they basically engineered the sexual corruption of the German people by 1972, and then they said they engineered the guilt that came from committing sins against the Sixth Commandment and said it's because you're, because you're Nazis and because you're bad people. And the people who wanted that sexual liberation, who wanted to screw whoever they wanted to screw, went along with it. They got a license to do whatever they wanted sexually, and the price you paid for that license was admitting you were guilty of killing Jews during the Holocaust. And look at Germany now, like it's the ultimate gay disco. It's completely broken. I mean, I think, again, we can talk from experience that Northern Europe and Germany in particular, back in the 80s, you know, 
you I remember we would go over maybe on school tours and and you would you would be aware that prostitution was visible in the streets you know the red light districts had all come into had come into all the german cities and and all of northern europe and like to us coming from catholic europe this was absolutely just the most grotesque thing to see this to see these women standing around you know half naked and right. selling their bodies on the street and you know that that like political uh, sexual liberation being the ultimate form of political control is just just look no further than germany of course then all of the laws were introduced obviously michael to stop them they weren't allowed to speak about their history and they would go to jail and still do if they talk if yeah, they question this, this, this is the irony the more you have sexual liberation the less you have freedom of speech take note ireland that's exactly what's going on in your country right now they they pass gay marriage they pass abortion oh and now we got hate speech that's the next thing coming down the line it co it follows as night from day that's exactly what happened in germany so they have maximal sexual liberation and they have absolute minimal freedom of speech that's they, it's not a coincidence these two things go together Aldous Huxley said that. And I mean, it's not just a matter of sleeping around. It's what sleeping around does to the fundamental unit of the family, of the of Catholic society, which is the family. The family must be the most important unit. And that means protecting property, protecting the family home, which is enshrined in our constitution. So when you turn people promiscuous, then the children are going to suffer. The, the wife and the husband or whoever is doing the sleeping around, you know, who's going to be kicked out. Somebody is going to be, you know, the hell that this brings upon society, upon families, upon children. It's not just about being sexually free. It's about the hell that it brings upon, especially the innocent children involved. And, you know, then they need to go off and get a second mortgage and then they discover their girlfriend is pregnant and then they've realized, oh, all of that. Why did I do that? I had a perfectly lovely wife and lovely children who now hate my guts and now I'm paying a second mortgage. So this is why Catholic morality, is, it protects everyone. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Experience keeps an expensive school, but fools will learn in no other. Correct. Ben Franklin said that. So now we're going to learn the truth of sexual morality, Catholic sexual morality, in the expensive school of experience. A lot of heart heartbreak and whatever else goes yeah. with that. We have to learn it the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. It's so sad. Um, your greatest enemies at the moment are not actually the Jews. It's actually these white, so-called white, white, so-called Christians. And we're not going to go over the father lens debate again. And this idea that we know that priests were persecuted. It wasn't just one priest, Father Lenz, who said that priests were persecuted by the National Socialist regime. It was hundreds of priests said it. And they were not lying. But more importantly, as far as Christians defending National Socialism, I'm right in saying that euthanasia was practiced under 
Hitler's regime. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. As a matter of fact, that was the turning point. So you had uh, a heroic figure like uh, Bishop uh, Graf von Galen of Münster. Münster's a Catholic area who supported Hitler's attack on the Soviet Union. There were Catholics who felt that communism had to be dealt with, that it was a just war to basically attack the Soviet Union because of what happened to Germany after the war, when the Jews came in and basically took over Bavaria, they created the Soviet Republic of Bavaria, they created the Soviet Republic of Berlin. Uh, and so there were support there among the Catholics. That stopped with the euthanasia program. As soon as the Catholic bishops got wind of that, they turned on the, 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 uh, the Third Reich. And Graf von Gollum was one of those people who was the first to turn and basically issued a pastoral letter saying, you cannot take innocent life. This is impermissible. And at that point, at that yeah. point, the Nazis are outraged. They're enraged. I've given example after example of all of these leading Nazis who felt that the Catholic Church was the main enemy of National Socialism. Long before they, they were talking, I mean, they were talking about Jews. There was Kristallnacht. But in terms of the, the, the real enemy, in other words, the group that had would contest the Nazi monopoly on the education of the young people or contest the Nazi monopoly of culture, it was the Catholic Church. It wasn't the Jews by this point. Does it say something in the Ten Commandments that thou shalt not kill? Right. I thought it did. So how is it that these solo scriptura Christians can defend national socialism since it was involved in the killing of the most precious people, poor disabled people? Like this is, you know, this, I'm learning. I'm, I have really no interest in national socialism. I don't want to live under national socialism. It's not give me Catholicism any day. But I can't understand these so-called Christians who attack you and attack me. And I don't think yet, they're Christians. I don't think they're Christians. I don't think they are. I think they, I they're they're pretty they're pretty upfront about. I mean, I I said one guy was a Nazi. He said, "I'm not a Nazi. I'm a fascist." Okay, all right. I, you can't be a Nazi now because the Nazi Party disappeared 80 years ago. Okay, so let's obviously you can't. But you're defending the Nazis. You're defending them based on no evidence there's no i asked one guy to send me the evidence i've already told you it's it, you know it's one story that turns out it's about jehovah's witnesses not about the catholics and then the next one is the uh, gestapo report which is actually in german okay so it looks like an actual gestapo report and they're not saying anything about these priests are being communists in the gestapo report it says they're giving retreats well I tried to, again, tried to say, look, Heinrich Bruni was the Catholic who basically shepherded the Concordat through into law. And he said after the fact it was a mistake because the only people who determined whether you violated the Concordat were the Nazis. And you didn't get a trial. So I had a, a, another memoir by a, a Father Kentenich, who was the head of the uh, Schoenstatt movement who was in Dachau along with Father Lenz. They mentioned each other he, each other in, in their memoirs. Well, he was arrested. He was no trial. 
they they got his papers. They they trumped up charges to get him, and they sent him off to Dachau. This is this is you're flying in the face of reality if you say this didn't happen. And then they say, well, they had to do this because Catholics were not allowed to get involved in politics. Why not? Like, well, first what, of what, first what's of all, the problem. What's the problem? <laughs> first of all, who gets to determine whether the sermon you gave is political or not? Only the Nazis got to determine that, and they did it without any juridical backup. There was no trial. If they didn't like what you said, it's I, one of the things that's occurred to me is. The Jew, the Jew boys, and the white boys—they both have the same narrative. They I both, know. They both yeah. hate. They both hate the Catholic Church. They're both yeah. willing to give the benefit of the doubt to people that uh, have no evidence. There's no basis for what they were doing. I think that it's sim- similar to what I said. You've got a group of people now. They're Protestants who don't go to church anymore. They have a new identity called white. They've identified with the Nazis. They like what the Nazis were doing. And both of them feel that the Catholic Church is their main enemy. Yeah. Well, like we just have to come back to what built America. It was Europeans. Who built America? Catholic primarily. If you, you know, look at Irish and Italian. Yes, the Germans obviously did their bit. Of course they did. But the hard labor was done by Catholics. And... Catholics built Europe. So there's no two ways around. Nobody in Catholic, in, sorry, nobody in Europe has ever called themselves white. I, you know, am I to sort of say after living in, the, in Ireland for all of my life that it wasn't our Catholic culture that made us a, a really, made it a fantastic country, very safe country to grow up and very friendly and decent it was the color of my skin. I'm only discovering this now that I, all along it was because we were white, not Catholic. I mean, this, this is such a crazy argument. Well, it's because of I, lack of identity. If you give up your national identity, if you give up your religion, there is a vacuum and nature abhors a vacuum. It's not going to stay mm-hmm. empty. Something else is going to fill its place. And so, you now it used to be just, pro- obviously, it's a much bigger problem with Protestants right now. Like whole countries like Norway, for example, have a, an identity crisis. They all have it. And what you see, look, Norway blew up the pipeline. They helped the United States. This shows you what happens when you lose your identity as a distinct people. I have no identity. I have to join NATO. They will give me an identity. I have to become a pseudo-American. And I know if I'm an American, I'm white because they have blacks over there. This is the type of crazy disintegration that is happening to European culture right now, right now. Did it ever occur to you, uh, Norwegians, that before there was a Lutheran church, there was a Catholic church in Norway? Did it occur to you, Croatians, to you, whatever? You know what I mean? This is the English... This is the, this is the, why is this being, why are you avoiding the obvious? Well, because they don't want to behave in a moral way. They're not willing I to. I think that we have to factor that in. That is a driving force uh, for these new pseudo identities. Mm. They are basically uh, uh, licenses for sexual liberation. You can do whatever you want now that you're white. 
if you were a Christian, you had to follow the Ten Commandments. Now you don't have to do that. You can do whatever you want. And the whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket, and then you don't know why. Because I'm not just talking about someone, one static position. We all live in time. And the sexual activity that we engage in bears fruit, either good or evil fruit. And what happens with the next generation? So you, okay, you liked watching, looking at Playboy, okay? That seems pretty innocuous by now. But that weakened you to the point where your son didn't really feel that he had a father he could rely on. And he became a homosexual because of father deprivation. Oh, we didn't think about that, did we? That's this whole generational slide into decadence that is picking up momentum now. And the the oligarchs are weaponizing it. I Wow, so we are the ones who spread sexual liberation, say the oligarchs, say the Jews, and now we'll engineer the next generation by promoting homosexual rights. This is the way it's working now. Mm-hmm. Family breakup. Fam- I mean, children cannot cope with family breakup. They cannot cope with their parents breaking up and taking up with, with new partners. This is going to devastate. And it is dead. And so that's why so many children are taking extreme actions, such as, you know, thinking that they're transgender, cutting off their reproductive organs, because they need the love and security of their parents and to know that their parents are not going to abandon each other or themselves. Yeah. Well, actually, actually Tote uh, says the, uh, he talks about the uh, state zero. Okay. The absolute end, the absolute disintegration of the state. One of the signs of that is gay marriage. He says that's an infallible sign that your culture has completely disappeared. Absolutely. One final question, Mike. Sorry now to keep you, but um, it's it's a good one to end on. And it is how how can people find their way back to the faith? It's not difficult, but you'll answer it better than anyone. If there's one place where it's easy to find your way back to the faith, it is Ireland. The churches are still there. You just walk back into that church that you left and go up to the priest and say, I want to go to confession. And then you confess your sins and you're back in the church and you're back in good standing uh, with God. It's that simple. It's simple. Especially for the Irish. Now, if you're talking about a deracinated white boy whose ancestors were Lutheran, well, it's more complicated for him, you know, who grows is in Scandinavia. It's easy for the Irish. It's easy. And so the Irish should be able to bounce back like that. It's not going to be like overcoming 500 years of English, British, Freemasonic, Judaizing revolution. It's not, that's complicated. This is not complicated. It's not complicated. And also it does involve not only confession and the Eucharist, confession and the Eucharist, they're the two requirements. And because, why are they required? Because you will get special supernatural graces to deal with everything that life throws at you. Right. If you think you can do this on your own, you're crazy. If you yeah. think, if you the Irish people or you, the German people or any of these enslaved populations in Europe who are now faced with extinction. If you think you can do this on your own, it will not work. You need supernatural help. 
We all need supernatural help. But certainly now, at this critical moment when the American empire is imploding, when violence is spreading throughout the world, we all need supernatural help. And there's only one source of supernatural grace, and that is the Catholic Church that was founded by Jesus Christ, who commissioned Peter as the first pope and said to him, you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's written in gold letters about seven feet high around the base of the dome at St. Peter's Basilica. And, you know, like Catholic, Catholic culture is still very much alive in Spain, France, Portugal, and, and Italy. And, you know, when you get buried in deep into some of the old villages of those countries, you will really find true Catholicism is, is alive. It may not be in the morality of the people, but, um, you know, the, in the, you, you see the centuries-long tradition of the faith still intact and, and the culture that has come out of that. And so there's no excuse for anyone, really, in no. Europe to, to not to re-familiarize themselves with the faith. But also, I, what, what would you say, Mike, in terms of Lent is coming up now in a couple of weeks? It's also about controlling passions, controlling you know, the need that the physical needs and getting them they under control. Yes. yes. It's very um, difficult to control the passions. Luther never succeeded in doing it. It was, it was this Catholic culture. When I went to Germany in 1973, I was a Jew and I didn't even know it because I'd been hanging around with Jews in Philadelphia, a part of the art world. I wanted to be part of that. And for the first time, I was exposed to a really deeply Catholic culture on the Lower Rhine. And that led me back to the faith. And that led my wife to become, she couldn't find the Episcopal Church in this village in Germany, so she became a Catholic. It's more complicated than that, but I mean, this is, I just talked to a Jew yesterday, a former Jew, who converted because he lived in France. Simply living in France had that residual cultural effect on it. It's still there. And that's what brought him to the Catholic faith. So no wonder they want to destroy this. No wonder they want to destroy this culture because it, it, it's what you say. The stones cry out. Ruskin wrote a book called The Stones of Venice. The stones cry out, proclaim the greatness of God. They proclaim beauty and beauty is a transcendental. And that's what leads us to God. In the depths of my Jewish period, I remember listening to the Messiah, and it drove me out of my chair, and it drove me to the church door. I couldn't go in at that point, but that's what it did to me. And this is the whole transcendental dimension of Europe that you find in its art, the greatest art in the world. That's still there. Just go into a church and do the Stations of the Cross and look at what Jesus did for us in those images that the Sola Scriptura people think should be burnt. Just do the Stations of the Cross and always remember the suffering of Jesus. Do your rosary every day. That's what I would say to people who, who are trying to find their way back to the faith. And it's so simple, as you say, Mike, it's so, so simple. You know, God does not ask much. Everything he asks from us is for our own benefit, everything. And that's all laid out in our wonderful catechism. So 
Mike, thank you so much for that fantastic conversation. You're, you've covered a multitude. And I will now let you go, unless you have any final words. Of course, get into fidelitypress.org. Holocaust narrative selling very well, I'm told. Yes, uh, fidelitypress.org. All of the books, all of the things I mentioned here were done in a book. Here's John Beaumont's book on the uh, on the legal case against uh, revision uh, uh, for revision and the whole legal story about that. That's available Thanks. now. Uh, Everything I talked about is available in book form with footnotes uh, so that you know exactly where it's coming from and you, people will know you're just not shooting your mouth off. You have something to back up what you're saying. Go to fidelitypress.org. Okay, absolutely. Great, Mike. Listen, we'll talk again soon. Take care of yourself. God bless. And thank thanks to everyone who has joined us this evening. Great audience tonight. Thank okay. you. Thank Good you, night. Thank, Thank you, Mike. Good night, everyone. God bless.